All right, West Haven, it is good to be with you guys. Um, my wife, Margaret, sends her regards. Um, she was not able to join us. She's leading a women's conference out in California right now, so, you know, she's doing just fine. Um, but I did promise that uh, I'd get a picture with all y'all, so you mind uh, helping me out with that real quick? Is that okay? Can we do that? Is that, is that cool? No one, no one minds? Um, I'm a total techno adult. I'm worse than dad, so all right, everybody. Um, one, two, three. Okay, I think I got most of y'all in there. Okay, look at that. Great. Appreciate that, Mom. Thanks. Got that out of the way. Okay. Well, um, just so I can kind of gauge the room here real quick, um, I, won't, I won't shame you here, but quick show of hands. So it's those of you who were here for the weekend, Friday, Saturday. Can I see some hands here? All right, so pretty much all of you. Okay, so you've gotten the privilege of hearing. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Brother Monty Schenkel preach who um, had the dubious privilege of having me on his staff at Concord for a little while there, and somehow he neither cut his wrists or my throat. Um, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he put up with me, but I'm very grateful. Um, so you have been the recipient of some absolutely fantastic preaching up to this point, and what I'm hoping to do this morning is just not mess it up. <laughs> so if you've got a Bible, would you open it to the book of Philippians, to the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Um, over the course of the history of Christianity, the history of the church, Christians have always longed for, in dry periods, dry seasons, longed for revival. And what we're describing when we say revival is that there are times in history where the church is the church's influence in the culture or simply the church's following of Jesus has gotten dry. It has gotten cracked like desert dirt. And we long in those times for the Spirit to come and blow his rushing wind through the temple of the church and blow out the dust within, to breathe his, his breath on us and, and restore life and vitality to the body. And while we have been looking in Jesus' direction and submitting our hearts to what his word has to say, um, what I'm hoping to do this morning is to get right at the crux of what the Apostle Paul has to say about exactly what an awakened life to Jesus, what a revived life looks like and how one gets there. Um, in case you're not aware, I actually only preach one sermon, and so this is a little bit of an apology for this fact. I only, I only have one, um, and, and mainly that's just, hey, look, there's Jesus. Let's stare at him until we really see him. Um, and I'm afraid that if you've heard me preach before, then you're going to listen to this, and you're going to go, man, I feel like I've heard this before. Gospel, gospel, gospel. That's all this guy talks about. And there are really two reasons for that. One is I am not all that bright, um, not, not terribly smart, definitely not as sharp as these two. Um, so I just don't have a whole lot of creativity. But second, um, gospel, 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 as far as I'm concerned, is the only message. That is all there is. Martin Luther very famously was confronted by a congregant of his once who complained about the fact that Martin Luther preached the gospel to his congregation every single week. This congregant said to him, that's all you do, that's all you talk about. Can't you preach something a little bit different? We want to hear something else. All you talk about is the gospel. And Luther who was famously very quick-witted, turned to him and said, well, I preach the gospel every week because you forget it every week. Um, and Luther later wrote of that confrontation that while he was being funny, he also had to admit that that is true of him as well. He forgot the gospel every week. By which he meant not that he forgot the facts of it, 
Not that he forgot the details, but that it stopped having as much of an impact in his life as it ought to. The thing about the good news about Jesus is that it is, as Brother Monty put beautifully yesterday, it's a mystery. And we try to get our hands on it. It's like a wet bar of soap. It can squeeze out of your hands, and you have to keep chasing after it and recovering it for yourself because our hearts are bent toward sin. Some of us bent toward license. Some of us bent toward legalism. Some of us, like drunks trying to climb up on a horse, falling off one side, getting up and falling off on the other, we need the gospel to keep us pointed at the true north of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going to remind us of today. So Philippians chapter 2, or 3 rather, verses 2 through 11, here's what he has to say. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more, says Paul. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him, amen, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, amen. Let's get right into this, because there's a lot going on here. Paul's really got two main ideas that he wants us to sort of get out of this text, and the first one is extremely difficult to miss from verses 2 through 6, where he says, watch out for anyone and anything that tells you that Christ alone isn't enough. Watch out for anyone and anything that tells you that Christ alone is not enough. Take a look at verse 2. The very first statement of this passage is a command. Watch out. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he identifies three things here. But these three warnings are all actually pointed at the same group. Paul's concerned for the Philippian church because there are these false teachers among them who are spreading an old lie. Now, if you're familiar with your New Testament, then you'll know that this is a similar problem to what the Galatian church was facing. There's this faction of false teachers who have systematically infiltrated the European and Asian churches that Paul and others had planted with this toxic message of the gospel plus circumcision. Now, this is a little tricky, so to be clear, these guys were not saying that circumcision was what saved you. That was not their message. They were more subtle than that. They acknowledged that justification, that is to say getting saved, comes through faith alone in Christ alone, but... There's more than one way to mutilate the gospel, y'all. These heretics, these people that Paul called dogs, more on that in a minute, were teaching these precious Christians whose faith in Christ was, was very new that, yeah, sure, faith in Christ will save you from sin and hell, but only ritual adherence to the law of Moses can make you secure in Jesus. It can only, get, only the ritual adherence to the law of Moses can give you assurance in Jesus. Only ritual adherence to the law can make you complete in Jesus. In other words... 
One of the very first lies that Satan tried to smuggle into the church was essentially the same thing as the first lie he told Adam and Eve. The, the words that Satan said to Adam and Eve were, did God really say, right? We're all familiar with that. But think about the implication behind those words. Satan's first lie was really as simple as, God is holding out on you. Can you really trust that God loves you as much as he says he does? After all, Adam and Eve, he's withholding this thing from you, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Could it be that he has a secret agenda? He says he loves you, he's given you all these good things, but is it possible that maybe you're vulnerable to somebody who's up to something you don't know anything about? And he pointed out to Adam and Eve their vulnerability, and he, he pried on it by offering them control over their relationship with God. They would no longer need to rely on God to keep his promises. They could just be like God, knowing good and evil, and that's how he got them. And that's so often how he gets us. You see, God's grace dispensed through Jesus is out of our control, and it's out of our control because the God who gives it is out of our control. We don't determine whether or not God dispenses grace. He does, right? That tends to bother us. We like control. And the Judaizers, the mutilating dogs of this text, they've got a perfectly reasonable way for you to both get the benefit of God's freely given grace, but get just a pinky finger on the steering wheel of the gospel so that you know this thing isn't going to rough on the ditch, just as Satan did to Adam and Eve. There are a great many obstacles to revival in our hearts and in our churches. Uh, there's the error of license, that is to say, thinking that grace means I get to do whatever I want, and obviously that is a problem. All you got to do is look around for about 30 seconds. It's a lie that far too many people believe. But just as severe, and I think vastly more subtle, is this lie. It's Jesus who gets your foot in the door with God, but you have to get you home. Jesus saved you, but now he's watching you. See if he's going to get a good return on the investment of his blood. Such a heart is often blocked from a revival because it is a heart that has been trained to not trust Jesus to do and be what he says he will do and be. Paul makes his feelings about these teachers and their little circumcision ritual very clear by hitting them with three insults, straight up ad hominem attacks, and I'm telling y'all, I'm here for it. <laughs> I think it's pretty great. First, he calls them dogs, which to be clear is not a reference to your adorable Shih Tzu Chihuahua mix lap dog. Um, this is a reference to the kind of pack-hunting mutts that ran wild in the streets of his day. These wild animals were thieves and scavengers. They spread disease. They attacked travelers. Cities in this age were just full of them, so Paul's readers know exactly what he's talking about. Second, he calls them workers of evil, or evil workers, your translation might say. And then in case anyone has ever accused him of not having a sense of humor, he also calls them mutilators. And given that the topic on the table is circumcision, I don't think I have to explain the joke to y'all. Um, this is some of the most scathing language you'll find in the New Testament, shy of that one time in Galatians where Paul says of the same group that he wishes he would, they would, quote, go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And in case you're missing how serious he is, Paul repeats that phrase, watch out, three times, if you've noticed in the text. That means he's putting maximum emphasis on the idea. So we ought to sit up, take notice, and maybe do a little watching out for ourselves. This passage isn't only a command for the Philippians, West Haven. Don't make the mistake of thinking the Judaizers died out in the 4th century. They go by different names today. Their mutilations of the gospel take different forms, but they most certainly exist. They're numerous, they come in every variety, and they are subtle, my friends. And everything they tack onto the gospel boils down to an encouragement for you to trust in some work, person, or thing that isn't Jesus. So how then are we to follow Paul's command here to watch out? How are we to avoid them? Well, 
Paul immediately answers in verse 3. We learn how to avoid these dogs and their plus one gospel by, you're going to love this, constantly reminding ourselves not just of what the true gospel is, but how and why it actually works. Paul says there in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision, the true circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. When he says do not put confidence in the flesh here, what he's saying is our trust is entirely 100% invested in Jesus for all of salvation, for our justification, for our sanctification, for our glorification, or to put it another way, our trust is in Jesus completely to save us, to get us to what the Hebrews describes as the holiness without which no one will see the Father, and glorification, that is to say, bring us home to heaven with him. If at any point along the way of those three sort of stages of the Christian life, our trust is transferred from Jesus to some other person, work, or thing that isn't him, Paul considers that a mutilation of the gospel. Now, Paul's encouraging the Philippians to avoid these dogs by keeping their eyes on Jesus and his promises. He's saying, guys, they can bark all they want, but we are the true circumcision. That is, Jesus isn't just putting some mark on our bodies. If you're trusting in Jesus to save you from sin, death, and hell this morning, he's done something far more radical than cut off a little bit of skin. He's in the, in the very process of performing open-heart surgery on your soul. He's ripping out your old nature with its corrupt, sinful desires, its evil practices, its selfish obsessions. He's installing a new heart that yearns for him and the day of his appearing. So to put it another way, mature believers who haven't fallen for this lie know better than to look for the, to their good behavior or their spiritual disciplines for their security in Jesus. Now, obviously, we ought to be about obeying Jesus. This is part of the Christian walk. We ought to be about our spiritual disciplines. But the Judaizers want you looking to those things for your security in Jesus. You see the difference? They want you desperately anxious every day you get up about whether or not you've done enough for Jesus to get him to like you today. They want you absolutely trapped in that downward spiral of sin where you, you sin, you feel horrible about it, you feel horrible guilt, so you say sorry to Jesus, you try to fix it with their little prescribed whatever and fall into the same sin and wash, rinse, and repeat, and you spin your spiritual tires getting absolutely nowhere. Friend, you've got to talk a little smack to your sin. Jesus has given you license to do so. Yeah, okay, you got me today. But by the grace of God, you ain't going to dog me forever. God's promise the good work he began in me will be brought to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, so I'm going to fight you with everything I've got, you vile little toad. Get turned up, church. Jesus has promised that it's as good as done. You don't need what the mutilators are offering. If they come sniffing at your door, here's what you do. You ready? Knock, knock, knock. Who is it? Uh, it's me. I'm a gospel mutilating dog with a gospel plus message for you. Okay, bye. Boom. That's it. That's what you do. You don't need that noise. All you need is Jesus. But I got bad news in that the dogs aren't just out there in the street. If you're anything like me, and since you're a human being with a heart, I regret to announce that you definitely are, sorry. You've got a mutilating heretic dog living inside of you, right here. You know what I mean. It's that nasty little voice that comes out whenever you've sinned or when you're tired or you're hangry or you're lonely or you just can't make sense of life or when the waves of pain keep rolling in or when you find your heart and desires divided, or when you've got so much work to do and not enough time to do it in, 
in those vulnerable moments, it's the one that asks yourself over and over and over again, but how do I know I'm in Christ? Points at an empty spiritual trophy shelf and says, I ain't seeing anything here that proves you're the kind of person that Jesus loves. Sometimes it'll slip in little tidbits here and there about how, yeah, Jesus loves you now, but how much more is he going to love you once you get more consistent about sharing the gospel or, or once you finally lose that weight or you, you have that child or you get that recognition or get rid of that besetting sin or beat that bad habit or on and on and on. You get the picture. What's tough is that that voice is not saying, well, you need X to be saved. That'd be a little too obvious. We'd reject that out of hand. No, what it's saying is far worse for the subtle deception of it. What it's saying is, this accomplishment, this qualification, this credential, this recognition, whatever, will make you complete in Christ. This will make you confident in Christ. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, it takes our glorious, all-wise, all-kind Jesus and turns him into a hand stamp to get into a club or a concert. It takes the trust that ought to belong only to Christ and gives it a part of it to your ability to show that you belong here among the saints. But if you're using your work for your church or your good reputation or even your piety as any aspect of your assurance in Jesus, the text says you might as well be mutilating yourself. If you're putting good things or aiming for a holiness in the forefront of your life because that's how you're sure you're in, then you might as well swallow arsenic for all the good it's going to do you. Your trust only belongs to Jesus. And for that matter, so does your obedience. If you're obeying Jesus' commands while your heart is cringing in fear of him, then you aren't actually obeying him anyway. Imagine for a minute that you were able to beat that sin or get that recognition or learn that skill or figure out that theological idea or whatever it is. What good is it if it's sweeter to you than Jesus? Really? It's not going to add anything to you that's not going to be lost again at death. So Paul wants us to recognize it for what it is, a hollow, empty deception intended to keep us from Christ by getting us to substitute the good for the perfect. If you're a believer, do not believe the lie that you have anything but the full and total love of Christ. Don't mutilate yourself or the gospel by trying to cut yourself into the shapes demanded by the modern-day Judaizers. Instead, trust the Spirit of God that caused you to love Christ in the first place to gently shape you in His image and in His timing. He is the one who will complete you, not the empty promises of some barking false teacher or the anxious yip-yip-yip-yipping of your own internal mutilating dog. You see what I mean? So in verses 2 and 3, Paul told us we need to watch out for anyone and anything that tries to tell you that Christ alone isn't enough, but I'm telling y'all, <laughs> he's just warming up. <laughs> he tells us now what we need isn't to get to work and grind spiritual grist. What we need is to know Christ and thereby gain Christ. Knowing Christ and gaining Christ are the only way you will ever shut that barking dog up and experience the awakening revival that comes from the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus. Because it's only by doing so that you will come to see just how reliable Jesus is, just how well-placed your trust in him is. And you know what trusting people tend to do, people who really trust in Jesus? They tend to do really big things for Jesus. They tend to not have very many limits on what they think it's possible for Jesus to do. But you know who doesn't accomplish a lot for Jesus, really accomplish things for Jesus, are folks who are pretty concerned that if they step a toe out of line, Jesus is going to hit them with the zap button. You see what I mean? Now this one's a tough pill to swallow, what Paul has to say next, because he says that greater trust in Christ 
comes only by the path of loss. Greater trust in Christ comes only by the path of loss. He makes a pivot here in verse 4. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, don't put confidence in the flesh. And he suddenly interrupts himself, and he goes off on a little tangent. He says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I love this. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, etc., etc., and then he says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Man, Paul's got his dander up here. Now, to be clear, we learn from other places in Scripture these Judaizers have been attacking Paul by basically calling him hack. So he responds by dunking on these self-identified elites with his own spiritual bona fides. Now, he's not doing this as setting up some kind of backdoor bragging for his past achievements. He's setting us up for a stunning reversal. So what comes from verse 5 and 6 is this ledger of spiritual trophies he's got on his shelf. He's pointing to all of them as a way of saying, if anyone's got reason to trust in their good works, it's me. Take a look at these. If you wanted to put the list in you know, modern Southern Baptist terms, Paul was born to a marriage of Billy Graham and Beth Moore, and he got nursed on gravy at church potlucks from birth and learned to read by study and Lifeway curriculum and got asked to preach the first time when he was eight years old and seven people got saved. I mean, that's, that's Paul, you know. This guy was set on the path to success from the moment his mom saw the twinkle in his daddy's eyes. But that's not all. Paul didn't sit on his laurels. You see, once he hit adulthood, he started making spiritual hay. He became a Pharisee. That is to say, he was so orthodox, you could bounce a quarter off his theology. Not only could he tell you how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, he could tell you what step it was and give you a perfect demonstration. He was so passionate about God and his understanding of God's law that he viciously persecuted the church. And from the Judaizers' perspective, with all those gems in his crown, he looks virtually unassailable. No one's going to marshal a resume like this. We've got to get Pastor Kirk in here to put some supports on his spiritual trophy shelf before it falls on the floor. And once he lays all this out, this spread of achievements and accomplishments and accolades... He steps up to it, braces it, and flips it into the dumpster. Verse 7, but everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Paul would gladly see every single one of those things dumped into the trash now that he knows Jesus. And if that wasn't shocking enough, he goes even further in verses 8 and 9. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. What? Did you hear that? Paul compares these normal and even outright good things, not just to inoffensive garbage like junk mail or candy wrappers. No, he, he compares his glorious, stunning, praiseworthy list of accomplishments and every other good thing he's ever had or done to something you'd find floating in a toilet. Now, I don't say this to be crass. Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to use a Greek word here that is most commonly used elsewhere to describe animal feces. In other words, the kind of thing that those dogs he was talking about in verse 2 would think was delicious. You see what I mean? And let's be clear that none of the things on that list, with the exception of the persecution of the church, is bad. We still highly value those things. Theological education, a zeal for holiness, good upbringing, passionate pursuit of the knowledge of God. We praise those who pursue those things, and rightly so. But when those things are stacked up against knowing Jesus, 
when we try to use those things as a way of getting right standing with God, they are garbage. Garbage. Paul is laying this out not only to prove that he knows what he's talking about, he's also critiquing the false teachers of verse 2. He's saying, I've got all the spiritual capital that these guys have plus more, and I'm saying if you want to know Jesus and be confident in him, circumcision is worthless for getting it done. Paul's argument is that Jesus is so trustworthy, so valuable, so beautiful, that all our efforts to spiritually better ourselves apart from him are like cake deer wax by comparison. But he's not just stopping there. He's also picking up every good thing in the world, and he's comparing it to Jesus, eh, and he's happily abandoning it. Listen again to that beautiful, weird phrase from verse 8, I consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything. Let's bring that home for a minute. That means he's talking about your job and your friends, your kids, your education, your singleness or your marriage, your hobbies, your exercise routine, your bank account, your citizenship, your constitutional rights, your health, your youth, your old age, your freedom, your very life, all of it compared to Christ, <laughs> lost by comparison. And Paul's not just saying this in order to give us a nifty gauge to measure Christ's value. He, he doesn't intend to just call it loss. He, he's treating it like it's loss. And in his mind, it seems like it's a worthy trade. Do you ever read this and wonder, like, what is Paul experiencing? Like, what is he going through? And, and why don't we feel that way? For Paul, it seems like if he could just have Jesus, if he could just know Jesus, it really would be worth losing all these things. He's, he's, he's not saying he's holding them with a loose hand so that if the day comes and he should lose it, he's got the right perspective and all that. No, Paul's saying that he has already lost much of these things and has found that at the bottom, Christ is enough for him to be secure in life. Is Christ enough for you? If it came right down to it and you had to choose between some good thing and Jesus, could you give that good thing up? At some level, the, the dogs of verse 2, their lie gains traction because deep in our hearts, deep in our hearts, we're unsure of the answer to that question. Is Jesus really that sufficient? And I don't ask that question lightly. Jesus himself puts it forward in Luke 14. Count the cost of following him, he says. It's not a secret. He says very plainly that following him may cost you something precious to you. It cost Paul. He lost his social standing. He lost his friends and the brothers and study he gained when he became a Pharisee. He lost friends to heresy and persecution and disease, and you could go down a very long list. He lost his rights as a Roman citizen and ultimately his own life. I think sometimes we hear a list like this and think, I could never do that. You hear stories of some believer who went through some catastrophic loss and in your heart, you know, you cringe a little bit because you're not sure you could rise to the occasion. But look carefully at what Paul's saying. He's not saying that he was able to reach some kind of zen-like detachment. He says he suffered the loss of all things and now he considers them dung. In other words, it was the very act of losing that caused Paul to realize fully how valuable Christ is. And suffering has a similar effect on us. In C.S. Lewis's incredible little book, A Grief Observed, which I would encourage you to read, Lewis writes about the loss of his wife and he says this, quote, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. You see? Lewis says, in this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, that is, the person who's being accused, the witness box, and the bench of the judge all at once because he always knew that my temple of faith was a house of cards, and his way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. Oof. 
When we suffer the kind of loss Paul is talking about, it's very important that our whys be asked in very close proximity to the beating heart of God because the warmth of his fatherly conditionous love and the affection that is all in him, then we can feel that even if we don't understand why pain and loss and suffering are necessary, we can feel that Jesus is that worthy, even if we can't know it the way that we'd like to. This is a hard truth, my friends. I, I hope you know I don't relate it to you cheaply. My personal understanding of it's come at the cost in my, in, of my own body and parts of my life. I, don't hear me glibly dropping bombs up here that telling you that the loss of a child or a cancer diagnosis or an unasked for divorce is just puppies and kittens because it ain't. This is a spiritual war. There are dogs out there that would have you for dinner. But we have a God and Father who is bent on bringing us home safely to him. He will not lose us. And the journey home will be made sweeter when we come to realize just how precious our self-sacrificing Savior really is. Now as we round this off, I just have a final little warning to offer here. Remember, the larger arc of this text is a warning against mutilating the gospel. So this section needs to be understood in this light as well. Paul's saying that loss is necessary so that, quote, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. In other words, as we've seen, there's a very real risk that a person can gather all kinds of good things and wind up transferring their trust away from Jesus and to their good record. And now, to be clear, I'm not saying it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that if you use these things as your metric for confidence in Christ, you're getting further away from knowing Christ, from gaining him. When this kind of thing happens, and it's far more common than I think we'd like to admit, what you get is a Christian whose outward behavior looks great, but whose heart is a wreck. This is how you get that church member who serves in the nursery or teaches a Sunday school class or is always bringing folks meals or what have you, but who's meaner than a striped snake. You know? The one who sneers down their nose at the lost the one whose heart just boils with pride and self-righteousness, the kind of person that you see him coming into the business meeting, you go, oh gosh, you know? That's how you get a Christian who's become convinced that their good behavior is what keeps them in good standing with God. That's how you get a Pharisee. And there is no obstacle to revival in a church like a Pharisee. I'm telling you. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I guarantee you, just like me, your sinful nature has been hard at work trying to grow a good little Pharisee in your heart. Perhaps you too have your list of credentials. Perhaps you, like Paul once did, hold these things on a spiritual trophy shelf somewhere in the basement of your heart. You're not relying on them for salvation. That's not what's going on. But you're just pretty sure that folks who don't have what you have just aren't quite cutting this Christianity thing as good as you are. It could be a long list of things, everything from your parenting philosophy to your work ethic to your hard-won life experience, common sense, your theological bookshelf, whatever your metric is, you've got your own reasons for confidence in the flesh. Well, guess what? I've got very good news. Jesus is going to take a baseball bat to that, John. He's going to set you free from the bondage of your spiritual trophy shelf. If you have repented of your sin and put your faith in him to save you from death and hell, he has bought you with his blood. And his blood outshines your track record, your efforts, and your reputation like a star outshines a glow stick. His righteousness outpunches yours like Mike Tyson hitting Pee Wee Herman in the mouth. And his intent is to bring you home and it's stronger than all the power of death and hell and of Satan himself. So stop trying to save yourself. Trust that he can and has and will give you the righteousness from God based on faith alone in Christ alone. 
The last two verses of this passage summarize things beautifully. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And in case you were wondering, that's what this whole ordeal called the Christian life is about. That's what this whole business of making sure we keep our trust in Jesus is for. It's about trustingly, faithfully walking in Christ's footsteps toward Calvary. Walking where and how he walked, carrying our own cross and dying there with him. And then, then just as he did and just as he promises, we rise like steam on a morning summer lake. We soar to be with Christ, and in the end, all those things that were lost to us get restored, truer and better and newer and brighter and cleaner and clearer and unbreakable and unstained, and best of all, the Messiah will be at the center of it all. And it'll be as if we woke up from an indigestion dream. There is a day coming, my friends, with an actual day, with an actual sunrise, an actual minutes and hours and seconds, an actual date on an actual calendar somewhere. Brief side note, if anyone tells you they know what it is, <laughs> ignore them. But it exists. And on that day, Christ will return with a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who remain will be caught up to meet him in the air, and we will be with him, that Jesus who seems so distant and at times such a far-off hope will be with the Savior and lover of our souls forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your reliability. And we thank you for the fact that even though at times we get so twisted up and lost and confused about what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be doing it, you love us anyway. You somehow, in your grace, love us just as much now in our imperfections and flaws and sins as you will love us in eternity when we are perfected praise you for that, and we pray that you would help us to rest in that and enjoy the joy of it now. It's in your name that we ask this. Amen.